You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR. And we've just had a huge downpour of rain. So hopefully the people who are already inundated are uh, undercover and uh, they're secure behind their sandbags. But anyway, uh, more rain coming quite clearly. Uh, it was very hot last uh, yesterday afternoon uh, for uh, before the rain. So... Uh, can only say that uh, we're expecting sultry but rainy weather. Uh, Today on Solidarity Breakfast, we've uh, got uh, some voices from the Homes Not Prisons demo that was held on Friday on Parliament Steps, thanks to Karina and Gab. Uh, We're going to hear from Christy Kane, who has alerted uh, us that... um, uh, that, uh, Australian Super has got a a role that to play in what's going on on the wharves in Liverpool, and they probably should be uh, dealing with uh, uh, this because uh, workers' money in Super shouldn't shouldn't be uh, putting on chains on the wrists of fellow workers on the other side of the world. So we'll hear about that. Uh, there's a campaign afoot if things don't uh, change. Uh, we're going down to Geelong. We're going to the gallery, Geelong Gallery, because uh, they've got an exhibition on uh, Mandy Mi- M- Mandy Martin, a persistent vi- vision. She's a feminist uh, painter, but uh, in her later years before she died, she died in 2021, uh, she was a great advocate for the environment and uh, uh, is fascinating in the release about this exhibition. It talks about uh, Mandy's commitment through her painting and associated writings to the environment. We're going to talk to a, the curator, uh Jason Smith, who uh, has had a long acquaintanceship and love of Mandy's work. And as I said, it's going to be showing at Geelong. It's starting on the uh, oh, the 5th of November uh, very soon. So uh, you, sh- you could chalk up a um, visit down to Geelong. Their gallery is great. Uh, we're going to follow that with This Is The Week That Was, and it's a sizzling uh, piece this week. It always is. Uh, and then we're going to RAW, uh, Women's Rights at Work. It's the two-day conference started yesterday. It continues today. So if you are um, thinking of it, you could go down to the ETU uh 
building down in North Melbourne and poke your head in the door because there's quite a lot of workshops and other things going on. But we're going to hear from Carolyn Dunbar, who's the lead organiser at the Women's Centre at Vic Trades Hall at the moment. And uh, we uh, finish off with a rollicking uh, yarn from Van Bannum. She was uh, part of the uh, last session, which was about changing the conversation. And uh, she definitely is a great performer. It is in the uh, palm of her hands. But it was a very serious message that she was putting across uh, around uh, effective communication. So I thought we'd finish off there. Uh, we'll hear more from that conference because there were some incredibly interesting uh, conversations being had at that uh, event yesterday and uh, it's worthwhile us sharing some of them. But before we go any further, let's hear some important messages. <laughs> Throughout October, Vaka is hosting a series of rainbow yarning workshops for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The workshops will include guest speakers presenting on a range of topics for LGBTIQA communities and support services. To take part, visit the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency's Facebook page to register. The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency is a 3CR supporter. charity or community group looking for office space or a co-working space, Ross House has rooms of different sizes available, from 15 metres squared to 100 metres squared, at affordable prices. Many charity groups already call Ross House home, so if you're interested in joining a vibrant community or working towards social justice and environmental sustainability, please visit rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR community radio station and uh, we're going to go straight into Homes Not Prisons. Uh, that was on a demonstration held yesterday, a Friday, uh, Parliament Steps. Uh, thanks to Karina and Gab for providing this audio. First up, we hear Vicky Roach. Uh, it's actually her words, but read by Amanda George. And uh, it follows with uh, Sarah Schwartz from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. There's a bit of swe- swearing, so uh, it's a bad language warning. There's a bit of bad language this morning, so, uh, you know, here we go. It's a great privilege to be here and I acknowledge that we are on unceded country and it is a great privilege for us to be here today and and thank you, Aunty Di, for your welcome 
today and our welcome to, the welcome to country. Vicky needed somebody to do this and I am. I'm Vicky Roach, a UN woman with a master's degree in writing and you could almost say a PhD in the long history of the Australian prison system. Some people say the criminal laws that are putting more and more Aboriginal women, men and children in prison are broken. But I say they're working exactly as they were designed and tended to work. I was removed from my mother when I was two years old and charged with neglect by way of destitution and made a ward of the state. As a child, I ran away from a foster parent several times and was taken into custody for running away. My removal from my mother was a product of the colonial system and its laws. My mother's removal was also a product of the colonial system and its laws. My grandmother's loss of her child was a product of the colonial system and its laws. My child's removal from me was a product of the colonial system and its laws. I don't think I'm different to other Aboriginal women in the criminal legal system. We are all unique in our own ways, but the way we are treated is the same. The criminalising and the targeting of me as an Aboriginal woman who uses drugs and needs to be punished, to be corrected and cured, is the reason I have spent years in coloniser prisons. People who use drugs and end up in prison, particularly women, are very likely to look like me and, like me, have multiple trauma stories as yet untold. I started using when I was 13, lived on the streets for a while there. I was probably the original street kid in the cross. I was the one who used to sneak around at four in the morning and nick your bread and milk in your newspaper. For a really long time, it felt like we were just having fun. I knew everybody, everybody knew me and I belonged. I was part of the fabric of the cross. They were my people. The thing with using, there's a lot of problems, but it also gives you purpose and a community. When you look at it like everyone else, you've got to go and make the money you need. It's a job. You have to work at it like it's an actual job. A dangerous and often dirty and disgusting job. Nothing like the teacher, doctor or animal trainer you thought you wanted to be when you were a kid. But it's a job you found yourself in and you need to do it to keep the demons at bay. My so-called crimes were acts of survival. Survival was having enough money to keep a roof over my head and not starve and support the drug habit that numbed me enough to be able to do the things I needed to do to survive. It starts with out-of-home care, being removed from our own families. It's like a pipeline, a funnel. The juvenile justice system governs the lives of wards of the state. I was in adult prison by 17. There's this underlying ideology throughout corrections that we should suffer to be corrected. Aboriginal women in custody are treated with varying degrees of outright hostility, physical abuse and neglect. In my experience, racism is never more clearly defined than when you're sitting in police custody. Like if you're a wealthy white woman, you'll probably be looked at by a doctor straight away and get proper medical assistance and all that sort of thing. For a user off the street, they'd be treated far differently. Be lucky to see a doctor, lucky to get anything other than a Panadol. And then we'd have to wait for a nurse for hours to get that couple of Panadol. For an Aboriginal woman, she might be in the same boat, but probably wouldn't even get a bloody Panadol. Would only see the doctor because the doctor's there for the white woman anyway. Actually, I said bloody, she didn't say bloody. 
As an Aboriginal woman going into custody in prison, you have to be through that stuff as a child as well, and it's an extension of the same. When you're in a kid's home, you kind of figure it out pretty quickly that your own body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. They can do what they like with you. They can do what they like to you. With strip searching, so many women just dissociate from their bodies, which is not easy for all women to do. For a lot of women, just being strip searched in itself will trigger more trauma. Even after they get dressed, they're still sort of shaking and you know it's a traumatising experience, particularly in custody cells, because they're rough and they're rude and they're arrogant and they're personal. They make personal remarks about your body and shit like that. Like it always reminded me of slaves on the market getting ready to be sold. And it could be done as meanly or as roughly or as perfunctorily as they felt like. You know, it just depends. I lost custody of my son in 1986. At the custody hearing, the family court was in the old Albion Street Children's Court, the same court where the same judge had sent me to a children's home. I was in the same building with the same judge who sent me to prison as a child and was now deciding I was to lose my own child. It took me eight years of fighting in court to get my son back. I've been in nearly every rehab on the east coast of this country. The best drug rehab I ever had was actually for alcohol when I lost my job. I went on compo and they sent me into this private rehab. I couldn't believe it. They treated us like patients, not like inmates. And we actually saw the doctor once a day. We had all sorts of activities, art, music. Some were optional, some weren't. Very few were mandatory. An actual professor would come and talk to us about addiction and explain aspects of addiction to us. And even, he even taught me things I didn't know. We could leave any time we wanted. The only thing was you didn't want to come back drunk. If you came back drunk, they wouldn't let you get in. I think it was $30,000 for 10 days. And it wasn't drug-free. They gave me drugs and controlled the withdrawal so well that I hardly even noticed it. That was the best treatment I ever had. Rich people treatment. All the other programs I've been in teach you that you're a bad person. You're weak. You're useless. You're hopeless. And you need to suffer more to learn your lesson or some shit. They're all about total abstinence and compliance. And they're also usually shitholes. The food's usually shit. And because everyone's withdrawing without medical support, they're not very pleasant places to be. A lot of people are like, fuck this and just walk out. Then they call the police because you've broken your bail or whatever. The thing is, you can't force someone to stop using. It has to be their decision and their timetable. Our job is keeping them alive, treating their situation as a medical condition until they reach that point. And then to make sure quality care is available for them when they get there. There are a lot of barriers to get into treatment programs in my experience. Waiting lists of six months or more to get into the few rehabs that remain. Calling every day to see if there's been a cancellation. I've been through that process heaps. There's not enough beds and waiting times are too long. When someone decides they want to stop, they need the help then. Not to be told, ah, oh, just keep using until the bed comes up. Getting housing made a big difference for me. I got a job after I got housing. But you can't get started on anything. Your health, 
safety, well-being, nothing without a house, a home, a home base. Without permanent, secure, affordable housing, not permanent, secure prisons, without this housing, real housing, Aboriginal women become so enmeshed in the criminal justice system, they're in and out, in and out on a regular basis for the rest of their lives. Revolving door women also serve relatively short sentences, but even so, they lose everything they have on the outside, including all their personal possessions, clothes, photos and other sentimental mementos, accommodation and even their children. Have to start from scratch every single time, over and over again. And with mind-numbing consistency, have to maintain the fight to either keep or have their children return to them. My story is just the continuing story of all Aboriginal women during occupation, colonisation and genocide. We're in jail for breaking a white man's law. Men who have no right to be making laws on this land at all. Our law is first at law and should have always been the dominant law in this country. Terra Nullius effectively erased us so they can make their own laws and outlaw us. It's like we're refugees in our own country, on our own land, hunted by coppers and racists alike. And we remember how our ancestors must have felt as we lived through it. They say history is written by the victor. So be it. But let's make our story so big, so loud and so proud, we can never be written out of history. Homes, not prisons. Homes, not prisons. Homes, not prisons. Homes, not prisons. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. I also just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and um, pay my respects and acknowledge the Aboriginal elders of other communities who maintain the fight to achieve justice. Across Australia, we live on unceded land. Sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, I work at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service um, in the Wirriway team. Wirriway is a Wurundjeri word meaning challenge. We work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who've experienced violence and harms of police and prisons and the families of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who've died in custody. There is a crisis of Aboriginal deaths in custody in Victoria. There have been three Aboriginal people die in Victoria's prisons within the last 12 months. They were, they were all dearly loved by their families and communities. Every day at Vowles we speak to other people in prison who are worried that they will be next. We've got clients who are children who are in adult prison who've witnessed these deaths and have said that it has made them feel like dying is normal in Victoria's prisons. In Victoria, the Aboriginal imprisonment rate has almost doubled in the last 10 years and about half of the prison population is on remand. This creates so much trauma. The obsession that Victorian politicians have with tough-on-crime politics destroys lives, families and communities and Victoria spends billions of dollars on this system. Victoria spends $4 billion on Victoria Police annually, and this doesn't include the large amounts of one-off funding they're given 
for new weapons. Victoria Police employs more staff than any police force in Australia. Politicians are in bed with the police union and there's absolutely no independent oversight or accountability. Victoria Police are a law unto themselves. And it is police who investigate police in this state. It is police who investigate deaths in custody and police who investigate their own wrongs. Even within the government, the Victorian Auditor General has has launched a scathing report against the billions of dollars going to Victoria Police. Those billions of dollars which could be invested in public housing, on community health, education and legal services. Investing in communities makes communities safer. Investing in police and prisons does not make communities safer. For many communities, like the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities that Vows works for, Building prisons and expounding Victoria Police makes them less safe. Decarceration, getting people out of prison, would free up so much money that could be invested in communities. A huge portion of Victoria's prison population is on remand after being denied bail. About half of the Aboriginal people in Victoria's prisons are on remand. Many of them are facing charges that would not receive a prison sentence if they were found guilty. At some points over the last year, three quarters of Aboriginal women in prison were on remand. We have to fix Victoria's bail laws. We have to implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody over 30 years ago. Vals is asking Victoria's politicians to commit to a zero prison population target this election. And we're talking about closing down prisons. We need to close Dame Phyllis Frost Centre where Veronica Nelson and Miss Calgarrett died. We need to close Ravenhall where Michael Suckling died. We need to close Port Phillip Prison and we need to close Loddon Prison where Clinton Austin died. And we also need to minimise the harm and trauma that prisons inflict on people while we're working towards decarceration. That's why Vals wants the government to fund Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations to deliver culturally safe healthcare in prisons. Victoria is the only state which has a fully privatised prison healthcare system. Currently, healthcare in prisons is contracted out to a private company, Correct Care Australasia, which is a subsidiary of a billion dollar prison health conglomerate, Wellpath. Wellpath has been sued thousands of times in the US and have been found to cause deaths in custody and put, people over, put profit over people. And these corporations are unaccountable and prioritise punishment and profit over people's lives. Victoria is allowing these private corporations to profit from state-sanctioned violence. Almost all of the deaths in custody cases that Vals works on relate to poor health care. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are more likely to have died because of lack of access to adequate health care than non-Indigenous people. And poor healthcare in prisons makes it harder for people to build a life after they've been released. On behalf of Vals, thank you for coming to this rally today and showing that Victorians want a government that invests in communities and not police and prisons. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced, 
Istja Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istja Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Started looking in the mirror, face my own demons. Had every right to be mad, I had my own reasons. But to take it out on family was a bad feeling. I just want to pay back my mob with what I was gifted. I just want to be a good mummy, build my babies a home. Put a crown on my mama and I'll build her a throne. You can't talk about my past because them days dead and gone. And if you go and bring it up, you must have hate in your soul. And that's true. I just want to bring it back for a minute. And thank my sister and my mama for my children. Cause I was trapped in addiction and in prison But they gave me the tools so I could live a little different Thank my matriarchy and thank my babies for me I must be a good woman if I birth them seeds And to be a better woman I must follow my dreams And give back to everybody who done gave to me It's a full circle, what goes around comes around Yeah I was lost at the start but my soul got found And I just want to be here and make my whole family proud Do everything in my power to make them all smile now I'ma do better, good karma, yes I'm receiving it Made it all real cause I was sick and tired of dreaming it And this life here's a gift, I'm gonna keep on succeeding it I had to get it out for mud and make it better Grab my babies by their hands and we gon' do this together Got these tears in my eyes while I write them love letters And I know I'm not perfect but I'm never gonna give up I gotta plant them seeds and tell the truth how it is I gotta stand up strong and be a mum to my kids I gotta come back strong and go and face some fears Cause I was sick and tired of hating on myself all them years I am powerful and I don't even know the half of it But I'm whole within my being and I am no longer masking it Every time I fall I now look at the stars Cause dreams are for real, I'll never lose that spark Community Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976. And you're with Annie on Community Radio 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast on this Saturday morning. And uh, we've just been listening to Homes Not Prisons, uh, Vicky Roach and Sarah Schwartz uh, from that rally that was on the steps of uh, Parliament House on Friday. Uh, we're going to move on now to Christy Kane, National Secretary of the CFMMEU, uh, on the warpath because of Australian Super's role in the oppression of workers on the Liverpool wharves. The issue highlighting international worker struggle and that workers' money in the form of superannuation should be used to establish a fairer world for working people. Here's what Christy had to say. He was talking to the boys from the uh, Concrete Gang. uh, And if you want to hear the full uh, interview, then you should be listening to the Concrete Gang tomorrow on 
your radio station 3CR at 7, uh, 9.30. No, they don't, they don't get up on Sunday at night. 7, no, no, 9.30. Now, coming to Lip, the Liverpool Dockers dispute, I want to run you through a few things, which is real important so listeners uh, understand, especially people uh, who are um, in Australian super, understand what's going on with their money. Um, in 1995, 500 Liverpool Dockers got sacked for not crossing a picket line. They were out uh, and locked out for two and a half years. Two Christmases, the snow and the rain, uh, and that dispute was lost. The company involved in that dispute was Peel Ports. Um, and the reason they lost that dispute was a man called Bill Morris, who is now Sir Bill Morris, who was head of the union at that time, um, sold out the workers. Um, 28 years later, dockers have reorganised themselves. They're now 100% union in Liverpool. And um, I've got to say, uh, they they balloted their members uh, for a cost of wage living increase. Now, over there, as you know, inflation is running at 12.8%. 12.8%. And it's, it looks like it by January it's going to go to 15 16%. Mm. Um, people are doing three jobs. And, in fact, these dockers haven't had a wage increase. Um, between 1995 and uh, 2022 this year, uh, all they've had is a couple of pounds... Uh, wage increase uh, and it's miles behind uh, the equivalent wages is around $800 for a 40 hour week and that's why the dockers have got to do 70, 75, 80 hours work uh, to try and live Peel Ports at the same time have made uh, um, massive, massive millions and millions of pounds in profit which means uh, um Australian super uh, are making millions and millions of pounds as well. Why are we going to talk about Australian super? Well, they're the second biggest shareholder uh, and the owners of the Liverpool docks. They own over a third, 37.4%. Now, uh, they are a fund of about $288 billion dollars. Uh, and they are owned by the ACTU and AIG Group. Uh, On the board is Michelle O'Neill, the Vice Chair, Dan Walton from the AWU, Glenn Thompson from the Metal Workers, and there's another lady from the ASU. Um, Can't remember her name at the moment. They're all on the board. That's disgusting. Uh, Now, there's also another big pension mob from the Netherlands involved in the Liverpool docks, but they're not as big as Australian Super. And what I want to put on on this show, and I will be saying it at the ACTU executive, do uh, this is workers' capital. This is workers' money working for bosses against workers getting a cost of living wage increase. It is absolutely, absolutely disgusting, in our view. Um, and there they are making millions and millions of pounds over there, and they can't give 
dockers a, a cost of living wage increase. Um, so the support has gone out. The call has gone out from Unite the Union, 1.2 million members or 1.5 million members, uh, asking for support uh, for these dockers in this dispute. And uh, let me tell you, uh, while they've been negotiating over the last week, um, they've, there's two things they've done. The company, the steel ports, have gone into negotiations not to talk about a cost of living wage rise, but now, because they've asked for that, they've uh, gone in and said, yeah, well, have some of this. We're going to sack 132 dockers because you're asking for a uh, cost of wage uh, living increase. And on top of that, mm. they put an ad out, um, basically asking to train scabs to come in yeah. uh, and, and uh, excuse the language, fuck over workers using workers' money, blood mm. money. It's nothing but a union busting exercise. Mm. And the ACTU, we're calling on them, we're calling on the unions, we're calling on the executive. And let me tell you, the ACTU have said uh, in a resolution that they fully support the, the uh, Liverpool Dockers' claims. So we're asking them again, especially them unions who are on the board, to support the Dockers, uh, to get in touch with Peel Ports. Um, and the ask is quite clear. Give them a cost-of-living wage increase. They shouldn't have to work 80 hours a week to try and live. They shouldn't have to work two or three jobs to try and live. And, uh, you know, the Australian unions over here now have got together, the building unions and the maritime unions, and that is uh, the ETU, CFMEU, CFMEU, the metal workers in Victoria and, uh, and um, the plumbers. Um, have all come together and put a joint statement ready to go. It's going out there to the uh, Australian Super and we're saying quite clearly that um, if they don't fix this dispute, then uh, the building unions are going to be marching on Australian Super and no one wants to see that, no one wants to do that. But um, if they put us in a position where we have to support workers uh, and, you know, this is international solidarity. You've seen, you know, workers all over the world. You've seen them in the States support the CUB dispute, the Teamsters. You've seen the ILWU support the Dockers uh, uh, Patrick's and around the world here in Australia. And it's our turn, uh, you know, globally to make sure that these multinational companies like Peel Ports uh, pay workers properly. Absolutely. Give them good conditions give them cost-of-living wage increases and make sure they go home safe to their loved ones. So we're not going to drop off. And, uh, in fact, if it isn't resolved this week uh, or the end of next week, then obviously we're going to step it up. We know there's shareholders' meetings. Uh, we know there's uh, things going on down there at uh, Australian Super. And not only are we going to step it up here in Melbourne, uh, we will escalate it around the country. Uh, so Australian Super, be aware that uh, we don't want to blue with these guys, but um, there is a responsibility uh, for us to make sure that workers get paid properly wherever country they're in. And, uh, you know, uh, workers' capital should work for workers, not for bosses, rotten bosses like Peel Ports.
At a hundred percent, the union won super, and now our money's getting used to, to screw over workers in a different country. We would, we wouldn't cop it if it was in the middle of Melbourne, and we're not going to cop it in Liverpool. You know? No, and I exactly right. Um, so if you just take, for example, CFUS, if they uh, invest in a building, they make sure that it's Australian rates to pay, safety on the job, delegates on the job, and uh, you know it's union rates. Yeah. Um, so you know. Australian super's got a lot of digging to do, and they should look at themselves. Uh, and especially if these unions are all on the board, they should be screaming their heads off now. Make no mistake about it. They should be supporting those workers. Or well, what are they going to do? There's an ad out there. They want to sack 132 dockers. They want to bring in scabs. I said, what are we going to do over here? Endorse that through Australian super? I don't think so. And so we're, we're going to have a go and we'll be standing. If we've got to send a delegation across to Liverpool, we'll be standing on them pickets with them and we'll expose uh, this Peel Ports for what they are. They are just a union-busting company. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855 AM. Tune in and listen up. Yes, and you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've just been listening to Christy Kane. He's the National Secretary of the CFMMEU uh, talking about uh, Australian Super's involvement in uh, what is turning into a uh, tragic uh, struggle on the wharves of uh, Liverpool and uh, obviously the union movement on this side of the uh, ocean is uh, prepared to stand up and uh, be counted in that particular issue. So watch this space. Uh, Now we're going to move on to a bit of art and uh, we've got Jason Smith and he's from the uh, Geelong Gallery on the line. G'day Jason, how are you? Good morning. I'm well, Annie. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've, it's given me an opportunity to find out much more about Mandy Martin and uh, a persistent vision, which is in, uh, indeed a good title for this uh, particular exhibition. Do you want to tell my listeners a little bit more about this? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Annie. Yeah, look, we from November we are presenting for the sort of full summer uh, a small survey of the work of Mandy Martin who was born in Adelaide in 1952 and she died in 2021. Uh, and she came to prominent... She's an artist uh, who I had known and worked with um, since I was 17 years old. So we had a sort of 37, 38-year friendship. Uh, and uh, she was a, a major feminist, very politically charged artist who emerged in the mid-1970s in Adelaide uh, with a, a, a leftist collective called the Progressive Art Movement um, in Adelaide. And she she came to prominence with very stinging political posters and prints that, you know, looked at the economic status of the worker and national industries and American imperialism, etc. Um, and she was part of a group, including others, really important artists like Annie Newmarch and Robert Boynes and, and others. But it was a really strong political movement. They went into factories, they went into workplaces, they looked at the status of women, women's rights, you know, gender politics, etc. So it was a part of a 
huge flowering of political posters in the 1970s. And Nandi became very prominent. And she then had a 40-year career that was really based on uh, looking at you know, industrial colonisation, what industry um, images of industry did to our landscapes, you know, to the quality of our air, to our waterways, etc. So she was a she was a really fiercely intelligent, very interesting artist, and she just sort of struck a chord in the seventies and the and the eighties, and she rose to real prominence, you know, for pictures of factories and you know, sort of powerhouses in the landscape, etc. So. It's going to be a really interesting exhibition to put together. So this exhibition, and then later in her life, that of course led to her. Uh, well, there's a really interesting uh, way it was described in the release, which was that uh, uh, commitment through her painting and associated writings to the environment, which is, uh, you know, it's like she was having a conversation with the environment in the later part of her life. All the way, exactly. I mean. After she stopped making very overt political posters with, you know, pictures of politicians and captains of industry in them, she she the, the human figure kind of disappeared from her work. But what she and she moved from Adelaide to Queanbeyan and into Canberra, and she she struck uh, on the image of the sawtooth factory and the sawtooth factory. And the powerhouse, you know, the, the, the power-generating powerhouse that we see in places like the Trobe Valley and down at Anglesey, uh, they, um, they became real symbols for environmental degradation. And these are pictures that she made in the early 1980s, and they really set her on a path. Uh, you know, she journeyed into lots of different landscapes to look at environmental fragility and to look at the impact of, you know, our our post our, our European settler cultures on you know, indigenous homelands, for instance, and the sort of disruption to indigenous cultural systems. But then, yes, all the way through her work, she had a very striking, strident, you know, active conversation with environmental uh, politics and, and worked alongside, you know, environmentalists and you know, farmers and bush heritage people. Um, you know, she lived for the last 25 years of her life in central west of New South Wales and quite close to the vast Cadia gold mine. Um, and so she had opportunity to critique, you know, sort of minerals extraction and, and what that did to the environment. And so let's go back to her. Uh, this this exhibition is going to go right, uh, go through her career. Is that right? Yes, look, it's got we've got about 45 works in the show and it does start with her one of her earliest prints from 1974-75 and then we go all the way through to a major work that Geelong Gallery commissioned from her and some collaborating artists Alexander Boynes and Tristan Parr in 2017 which is a huge work looking at the Shell refinery and and the ice caps Mm. Uh, but we go right back to um, uh, her political posts, her political prints from the early, for the mid-1970s, yes. Yeah, right. And so if we go fast forward, you know, to closer to her uh, passing, uh, she she made massively big pieces, didn't she, in oils? Oh, yeah. I mean, Mandy, look, I mean, <laughs> she loved paint and she loved moving it around huge canvases. She did make vastly scaled works. I mean, the most vast work of Mandy's. We see on television very frequently her 12-metre-long painting called Red Ochre Cove, which is in the main committee room of Parliament House in Canberra. 
And often when we see committees in that room, they'll, they'll pan down from that huge painting with a shaft of light. She, she, was a, she was a prolific worker, and one of the things that we talk about in this exhibition is Mandy's incessant drawing and sketchbooks. And, you know, she, she worked on a very small scale and sort of did lots of studies and sketches, but then she would work them up into these vast panoramic, you know, sometimes three-metre by six-metre, you know, paintings of, of landscapes. But she drew from all over, um, you know, sort of... She, worked a lot in South Australia, up in Queensland, throughout New South Wales, draw on drawing trips to, you know, quite fragile environment. And um, so, yeah, she she uh, she was a brilliant technician uh, and she had an extraordinary... She was a great drafts person. So she had great drawing skills that she then translated into these, you know, really quite big, atmospheric, very powerful, brooding paintings that were comments on... And, on, on, on the environment and on, on its fragility, yeah. Mm. Uh, and uh, the thing is, too, that she she is represented in possibly all of the major galleries in Australia, I imagine. Oh, she is. I mean, Mandy Martin uh, was a highly influential artist. I mean, she there's a lot when she produced her political prints in the 1970s. They they they. Had, Attracted criticism. I mean, critical acclaim. You know, people. She had a. She was regarded as an artist who had something to say. Excuse me, I've got a bit of a sniffle this morning. She was. An, she was regarded as an artist who had something to say, and uh, and you know there was a political dimension to her work. So she she attracted you know attention, um, and she also attracted the attention of curators and, and collections. And she found herself in the mid nineteen eighties, very much at the centre of a renewal in Australian painting of a particular form of expressionism and, and really tough painting uh, that sort of evoked, you know, urgent expressionism about tough ideas and particularly um, the work of women and, and, and a whole range of men. But she 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 rose to prominence and she uh, and she stayed there. And so she is represented in, you know, practically, well, in all state collections in Australia, many regional collections and in the Guggenheim in New York and um, various museum in Los, museums in the US. So she's she's well she's well represented around the, around the country and indeed internationally. And we're lucky that uh, there's going to be this exhibition starting November the fifth at the Geelong Gallery. So give us the practicalities. So this is we we are well in terms of the practicalities. We're open seven days a week, and the exhibition will be on display from uh, the fifth of November. Um, and it's running through until February uh, 2023. And people will see a range of prints, drawings and paintings from Mandy across this 40-year period. And, and what it's a partial view because we tell the industrial story of her work, you know, the, the, the factories and the powerhouses and some big panoramic landscapes. Um, and and it's it's her gift to us. She, she I worked closely with her before she died and... She gave Geelong Gallery 67 works that represent her mm. career, but also that, that reflect the fact that Geelong Gallery has an enormous and very important uh, collection of Australian printmaking, and she was a major printmaker. She taught at the Canberra School of Art for many years in printmaking and influenced a whole lot of important artists and filmmakers. Uh, so this is her wonderfully generous gift to the people of Geelong. She actually sat down with you and uh, worked it out before she died. 
Yeah, we went. I, I, I visited her three times in her studio. I mean, as I said, we were friends and professional associates for you know almost four decades. And, um, uh, but I spent when it was clear that she was going to pass away, she decided to begin putting her affairs in order. And she worked with a number of different curators from different institutions to put together parcels of work that were right for those collections. And so we worked together over three days to select this group of 67 things from her archives and from her collection that she had left that she thought would be good for Geelong. Well, that's just marvellous, Jason. Thanks for telling us about this. This is really interesting. Well, I really hope people take the trek down to Geelong to see it because, you know, she was an artist with really powerful messages about, you know, the, the world at large. And, you know, she was, she was a very sort of generous, democratic person and her messages, particularly around sort of, you know, the status of the worker, as I said before, but also our environment. They're, they're, they're very important messages. She was saying them in the 1970s and we're still saying them today. Thanks, mate. Have a good see day.
You're listening to 3CR Radio. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when we suffered a collective electric shock as state big supremo the pejorative Dan indicated a re-elected socialist government would re-establish the State Electricity Commission, the SEC, to lower power bills and ensure Victoria is 95% renewable by the mid-30s. To be fair, we still have an SEC when former caring business class party supremo Jeff Footinmouth handed the state-owned asset to his mates so we could enjoy the benefits of the efficiency of the private sector, lower prices and all that, which we've so enjoyed. He retained a shell called the SEC, whose sole role is to provide the massive subsidies we, we provide to Alcoa which uses about 30% of our state electricity and can't possibly afford to pay the bill itself. Anyway, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review led with the plan to reverse the decades-long privatisation will chill private investment and hurt ordinary investors and workers. And if we had any doubts about that, the report quoted those most reliable of sources who so care about workers would side with Capital Energy, Alien to Workers Energy and the True Blue Aussie Energy Profits Council. When it comes to their bottom line interests, they certainly do get energetic. And don't forget, Alien to Workers Energy is so committed to addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, it has plans to close the Luoyang power station, Trubla Wazi's biggest polluter, by as soon as 2047. Real commitment, real concern. But the most sincere concern for workers came from Lord Rupert of Wapping in his Wapping Sin. The pejorative Dan's commitment to 95% renewable energy by 2035 has been slammed as an attack on working families. It opened, opened its report. And who was expressing this heartfelt concern for working families? Why? The Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, of course. Lord Rupert's regular expert commentator on these matters, well, on almost all matters. The Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, the workers' friend, the true workers' friend. Unlike evil unions, which it and Lord Rupert know are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing when it comes to workers' interests. Separately, the Minister for Environmental Pollution, Tania Palutasik, put in their place those who suggest the government's dedication to extracting, utilising and exporting gas and coal conflicts with reducing pollution, attacking them as extremists. There are people at the extremes on these matters, she said, while boasting of her plan to prevent methane escaping from livestock which apparently balances the great resource corporations continued fracking and extracting, showing Tania is not an extremist. The socialist opposition in His Most Gracious Majesty's home country moved a motion this week to ban fracking the environment, but the government whipped its numbers into line, and when I heard the Speaker declare, the no's have it, the no's have it, I thought they certainly do. It's completely on the nose. Back here, our socialist government supports fracking the environment despite anti-progress carryings on by Tania's extremists. Perhaps she has a common cause with Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist who is so incensed by all these warmists who pursue the myth that is so-called climate change who tells us CO2 is good for us because it promotes growth and therefore contributes to feeding the world, saving us from starvation.
which, given he is omniscient, we look forward to his explanation on the long, long droughts and mass starvation and deaths occurring across so much of Africa. We can be sure he'll find a way to blame the warmest. Timely warning from the Reserve Losses Bank over new statistics showing wages as a share of the national income have fallen to less than half for the first time in half a century. What a surprise. The fall, the bank tells us, is due to the super, super, super obscene profits the resource industry is enjoying, distorting the figures. Wage earners shouldn't be concerned. The super, super obscene obviously not trickling down to wages, although they may because the bank gave us its aforementioned timely warning. See, the evil unions, including the ACTU, claim workers are not enjoying their fair share of profits and productivity. Hence the timely warning. We must not accept wage and productivity figures produced by the evil unions or their left think tank supporters, the Reserve Losses Bank alerted us. Only caring employers and their knowledgeable think tanks or so-called think, we must assume can be relied upon to give us the reliable figures. And this must be so because we know how much caring employers would just love to resolve the problem of slow-wage growth but just can't put their finger on the solution. Or more correctly, know that if the lazy, avaricious workers pull their fingers out, that is the solution. Productivity, anathema to the lazy, avaricious. So what seems a simple solution to us is clearly far more complicated. Like another headline this week, caring employers seeking how to solve the gender pay gap. Again, we would have thought there was a pretty simple solution. A problem the court solved back in the 70s, showing the difficulties poor caring employers must face trying to abide by the equal pay ruling. Half a century of adjustment and still working on it. One of those lefty, long-haired, commie-greedy think tanks, well, so-called think tanks, unlike genuine, deep-thinking think tanks like the Institute of Public, very, very private, the True Blue Aussie Institute, clearly envious of those super, super, super obscene resource profits, reckons the public purse would have been $20 billion better off this year if the government had introduced a windfall obscene profits tax on the specious grounds that what they extract and flog belongs to the people. Of course it doesn't. Governments give it to them. It's theirs. Isn't class envy such a poison on our classless society? But thankfully, big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital has assured the great resource giants they have nothing to fear. He most definitely will not ask them to be forced to spend more on their tax lawyers and accountants. The super, super, super obscene profits are all yours. Phew. Indeed, public altruism will go the other way. He insists he will persist with cutting taxes to the filthy rich, which will require a few cuts in other areas. Thankfully, one other area, unaffected, must be, and Jim has pointed this out, must be, the trillions we hand to the merchants of death for all their lovely, lethal merchandise. Some cynics have suggested that former big supremo Scuttle them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo's recognition of West Jerusalem as the capital of Zion, was a cynical ploy itself during a by-election in an electorate with a large Jewish population, which sadly didn't work, showing the sort of conspiracy theories these cynics will come up with. 
After all, there was also showing his leader, US of the UN, of the US of the world, Supremo Donald Trump, or the poor, what a good guy he is. How true blue Aussie will obey its orders. And I'm sure we all thought the Zionist reaction to the socialists reversing the policy was most rational, especially their accusation the government had taken the decision without consulting them, because clearly they were open to a balanced discussion in which they might well agree with the government, showing how reasonable they are. Yet so distressed were they that they had not been consulted, they could offer no thanks to the government for iterating its commitment to Zion, its support for the occupation of the landless people's land. But then I realised the Zion reaction was most reasonable and moderate when I discovered the truth via that most reliable source, the aforementioned Lord Rupert of Wapping, usual suspect lackey, or sorry, columnist, who screamed that our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, and the socialists had capitulated to terrorists showing that all the displaced people are terrorists and the Zion trained killers occupying the non-land to which they were banished, who simply shoot them, bomb them, arrest them, bulldoze their homes, control their lives and movements are dedicated pacifists who would never terrorise anyone. Uh, well, anyone who agrees with them 100%. All others are anti-Semites, anti-Semitic, including, therefore, the Semitic displaced occupied landless who must be anti-themselves. And the Shadow Minister for Going Overseas, etc., Simon Burbley-On, attacked the decision as a shambles, showing the government making a decision and announcing it must be shambolic, making, logically, every government decision shambolic. So Simon could be onto something. His Most Gracious Majesty's home country lost its second Liz in 45 days. One the longest serving, one the shortest. Big difference. But apart from their name, they do have one other thing in common. As Gilbert wrote, they'll not be missed. They'll surely not be missed. Caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, wants Greed Senator Lydia Thorpe to be missed from Parliament altogether over a brief affair with a former bikey leader, Dean Martin. That's amore. Rebel hell for rogue senator, the whopping sin screamed a whole page dedicated to how evil is this senator and the bloke involved. But then the very last sentence, right down the bottom... Dean Martin has no criminal convictions. Huh? But they just spent the rest of the page telling us what a villain he is and what a villain is the senator. So obviously, Pete and Lord Rupert and all the righteous screaming must be advocating that every MP must have a conflict with their spouse, partner, lover. In many cases, both partner and lover. That's okay, of course. Also okay, former train killer and being offensive minister Linda recalls nothing's husband sat in court every day during evidence she was supposed not to hear but anxious to know about. But she swore they never, never discussed the matter at home each night. Sure! And sure, she denied asking defence lawyers for a transcript but then admitted she had. And that's also okay, of course, a, a small memory lapse and we trust her. So, finally... I'm sure we'll all support the week that was his new campaign to solve this problem, and we thank Pete for alerting us to it. The week that was celibacy in Canberra campaign. Celibacy in Canberra. It's a winner.
And for once, we'll be telling politicians where not to stick it. Good morning. Yeah, that's right. Told you it was a sizzling one. That was Kevin Healy going through the week like a dose of salts. Before we were hearing from uh, Kevin, we... uh, we spoke with Jason Smith, who's uh, the curator at the um, Geelong Gallery, about the upcoming uh, exhibition of the works of Mandy Martin. It sounds like a really fascinating uh, exhibition. Should go down there. In fact, I probably will. Uh, but uh, something I can't do today is go to the second day of the Raw. Um, conference. That's the Women's Rights at Work conference. The first day was a sizzling one and uh, the second looks like it's going to be good as well. It's uh, going to kick off with uh, women leading industrial action with uh, people from the MEAA, the IEU and the ANMF talking about how they took and why they took industrial action. And uh, then there's going to be a variety of other events throughout the day uh, focusing on um, women action and uh, positive change. So uh, it's all happening down at the Electrical Trade Union offices in Arden Street in North Melbourne. That's 200 Arden Street. Uh, You could probably put your head in the door there and... uh, just to give you a taster, I had a word with uh, the organiser of the event, the uh, uh, Carolyn Dunbar. She's the lead organiser at the Women's Centre at Victoria Trades Hall at the moment. She gives us a little bit of an intro to what the intention is of the conference. And then we follow up with a sizzling, I love that word this morning, sizzling uh uh, presentation by activist writer Van Benham, who uh, was in the session about uh, changing the conversation, how to communicate ideas effectively. Uh, and uh, there is a language warning to Van Benham's uh, section in this particular morning. So here we go, Carolyn Dunbar. Carolyn Dunbar, and I'm the we're lead of the women's team at Trades Hall. Great. And now we're at RAW, which is uh, Women's Rights at Work. Now, this is a, quite a different kind of RAW because it's quite focused on um, politics and strategy, isn't it? Yeah, so the RAW conference is focused on our the tenets of our Organised for Equality campaign. And so our Organised for Equality campaign covers a broad range of issues. But what we know about um, the campaign is that we need to have industrial strategies, political strategies and, communi- and communication strategies to change systems and structures for women. And so we're heavily focused on those areas as well as um, having a focus on what we can do as unionists to show solidarity with our comrades, our sisters of colour and our First Nations sisters. Um, and so that's our focus of our of our conference. But also, uh, each of the people that have been speaking have been talking about um, effective campaigning. They have been talking about effective campaigning. So us in the union movement and those that we work with are incredible campaigners, and that's something that we're really proud of. Unions win campaigns. Union women win campaigns. And so um, we wanted to invite all of these amazing organisations and campaigners along to really highlight the work and share the work and share the knowledge of the work that we do so that we can um, learn from and build a collective um, body of knowledge um, and continue our amazing campaigning work within the union movement. So what range of unions 
unions are here today? Uh, we've got a broad range of unions. I think um, we have not all of our unions represented, but we have some substantial delegations from... We've got ASU, we've got ANMF here, we have... Um, uh, we've got Mia here. We've got um, uh, ETU and and um, many other unions here. So we're kind of well financial uh, uh, services union. Financial services union. Um, it'd be AEU, IEU. So um, we've got a significant number of um, unions here today represented, and you know, building our solidarity and our networks here as well. I noticed that the ETU is here. No other. Uh, blue-collar blue workers? Uh, we do have some other blue-collar workers. We're also running into day two of our conference tomorrow and expecting um, a lot of our blue-collar unions tomorrow. Um, but we want to thank the ATU for hosting us. So we're kindly uh, having a, having our uh, conference here at the Electrical Trades Union, which is um, uh, incredible. You know, we'd love to be here in this space and be supported by um, all of our unions. What's the focus of uh, Saturday? Uh, Saturday is uh, primarily focused on workshops and facilitated sessions. So today... We've had a panel structure. Um, tomorrow we've got a huge range of different um, of different uh, workshops, different facilitated se uh, sessions, different trainings, um, really covering everything from pay transparency to gendered violence at work to family and domestic violence leave. We're also going to have some fun with a rally sign workshop and a B Hotel workshop. So we recognise that um, you know this has been an empowering day today, but we've got to have some. We've got to also take that power and have some fun and enjoy ourselves as activists. So we're really looking forward. To all of our sessions tomorrow. Ultimately, this is a jewel in the uh, necklace of uh, working towards an overall uh, plan, isn't it? Yeah, so we are working towards our Organised for Equality plan. Um, there, we want to really the tenets of our Organised for Equality plan is that we want to be safe, respected, and equal, and that means a whole lot of different things. It means being safe at work and safe in community. Um, respect means getting pay equity and being respected and having our our traditionally or historically um, uh, women-dominated industries. Um, 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 paid fairly for the work that they do and have their work recognised. Um, it, it covers a whole range of different um, aspects um, and, um, you know, we encourage everyone to get involved with the Organised for Equality campaign and to, uh, you know, um, outreach to us if you want to know more about the campaign and we'll certainly be outreaching to all of our unions and our activists here today about how we can progress the issues that we discussed today uh, through our Organised for Equality campaign. Two, two of the most powerful things that were said today were uh, finding voice and uh, finding safety to stand up and fight. Yeah, so there's been it's been um, amazingly powerful to hear from so many women today talking about um, their experience of finding their voice and their experience of finding their voice in union. Um, so it's just um, been an incredibly powerful day, and we've been so fortunate to have so many amazing, um, amazing women and comrades here to speak. Thanks very much. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Uh, you might have been told that I am an absolutely appalling communist slut. 
Uh, my personal favourite is communist Dyke Jew Whore. I am only one of these things, but that's a pretty good Venn overlap of all of my friends. Um, I am also apparently a neoliberal shell, and I'd just like to shout out if anybody here has anonymously abused me on the internet, get fucked, I have a microphone, you don't. <laughs> Does anybody have a problem with swearing? Because if you do, it's going to be a long 10 minutes. Uh, as I said, I'm caring for my mother and I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty threadbare at this point. So it's going to get a bit raw because I can't swear at the 81-year-old woman with cancer. That's not, that's not socially acceptable. This is driving me nuts. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, we'll give, we'll give, we'll just come through. Okay. Oh my God, that's beautiful. That's some drama school training that is going to break all of your ears. So, anyway, I'm not supposed to be a journalist. I'm a journalist for The Guardian, um, as well as a Twitter personality. Um, and it is wonderful to be with a real celebrity, well, from TikTok, <laughs> today. And uh, I'm not supposed to have that job, because I never wanted to be a journalist. I never studied journalism. Uh, and really, fundamentally, did not interest me. I am lippy and political, and had built a bit of a cult following on Twitter, mostly referring to people like Christopher Pine as a human lizard. <laughs> and uh, I didn't realise, for I was young and naive, that um, the reason why I was agglomerating Twitter followers was in fact because I was political and entertaining and quite funny and had absolutely no sense of personal embarrassment, that I was divisive and that I attracted people who wanted to give me a hard time and I was particularly good at emasculating men and making silly people look a bit silly. So that, that was my talent. Um, I was asked to do a panel show in Sydney at a venue called The Vanguard, which when I went there used to be full of punks with heroin product problems. Not so. So I spent an hour doing a feminist comedy night doing jokes about periods and cocks and then the lights went on and I went, fuck me, that's the premiere of Queensland. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, also in the audience were the new editors of Guardian Australia, who obviously were from England um, and thought I was funny. And uh, they came down to Melbourne, they interviewed me, and they said, would you like to be a columnist? And I thought, well, I'm in this for a good time, a long time, let's see as much trouble as I can cause. And the, apparently the question that got me the job was, what do Australians feel most uncomfortable talking about? And I went, this is a country that pretends it doesn't have a class system. And they went, would you like to be a columnist for The Guardian? And appropriately, uh, somebody who I found out later had wanted the job uh, tweeted, I mean, it's in public Twitter. People get that. Like, it's not just your mum. Like, it's in public. Even people who don't follow you can see what you put there. And um, somebody wrote, but she didn't even go to private school. And I thought, oh! well, how fucking stupid must your parents feel for all that money they spent? <laughs> And I've got to say, like, I um, have thoroughly enjoyed generally being the only person from state school in most of the media rooms I'm in. Um, infamously, I uh, was at a media party in Sydney, the first I was invited to, and let me tell you, the invitations have been declining in frequency ever since. And somebody said, oh, I heard you've got a new boyfriend. I went, yeah, I do. And I went, and he's a union guy? And I went, oh, my God, yes, he is. And, um, and they said... So I'm going to see where I cast you know, is at the ACTU. And one of them went, so is he like a mechanic? 
And I was like, aren't you an investigative journalist? <laughs> like, isn't that a thing you should know? Or are uh, the entire Australian working class just some kind of 1950s image of men in overalls? And I hate to break it to you, fam, but yes, and they still think that. Um, my experience, like, everybody in the media is lovely, because obviously their parents paid a lot of money for them to learn those manners at the schools that they go to. <laughs> and uh, not at Bot Hacking High School Miranda, let me tell you. And... Um, it's always very interesting for me uh, that that sort of perpetuates. I have come to learn when I uh, well, I also train union officials and how to make media and deal with the media that they're, they're not our friends, the mass media. They are they're beautifully well-mannered, lovely, charming parties, fantastic hors d'oeuvres and drink in very amusing <laughs> ways. Um, but they are either liberals or their parents are. And that's it. Like people like me, we just we don't exist. Um, there's a handful of people who I would describe as having laborist politics, like overtly trade union politics, even though obviously mayor represents a lot of journalists. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that means they represent the organised working class, kind of a different vibe. Uh, but it's not a friendly atmosphere to us because it's culturally unfamiliar. It's unfamiliar with the language that we grew up in and it's unfamiliar with the rituals and the behaviour that we participate in as unionists and as people from working class communities. And, you know, there might be a lot of organisers in the union movement who went to university, but generally you get motivated to come back and serve the community that you're from. And it's a fundamental... Um, it, it distinguishes us and it isn't us from them scenario. So like I said, I committed to having a good time, not a long time, and with the opportunity of having a column, I thought, you know, I never grew up seeing any positive media about unions. I never grew up seeing any positive media about organised working class people and what I consider to be the highest, most noble ideals of all humanity. Solidarity, collectivism, struggle, self-sacrifice, unity, collectivism of action, what that means in the workplace and in the community and in the family. I never, ever saw those politics interpreted through the media. I found them through the Labor Party and through Labor communities around the Labor Party. I obviously found them in unions. I found them in community organisations. And I found them, quite honestly, in my neighbourhood with the families who were like my family, who were Labor voting trade union members and believed in those ideals of solidarity, family, collectivism, you know, one for all, all for one, you know, for any of the Star Trek nerds in the audience, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and the one. Like, absolutely. And so having the opportunity of doing the column, I went for it. And what made it a little bit different for me because I had this rather extraordinary experience. Like I said, I never intended to be a journalist. What I did intend to be was an avant-garde feminist theatre maker, partially because I knew it would completely freak out my dad. And, and the satisfaction of going, I'm going to university to study contemporary theatre practice was just one of those moments of perfect comedy that I have just lived in, in, in the wake of my entire life as the first in family to go to, my, to university. Can you imagine how my dad took that on board? Anyway, the interesting thing that happened to me was, because I was safely at the University of Wollongong, so I didn't really cause too much trouble, but I won a scholarship to study theatre in England. And the really odd thing that happened to me when I was in England was that for the first time in my life, no one gave a shit if I was a bogan. Nobody judged me on the basis of my accent or my manners. To all of those people in another country, I was just Australian, right? And I was this <laughs> other thing 
So there was no automatic class system. And I can't underline this enough. Because of the way that I talk, I was in a restaurant in Brisbane the other day, and this happens to me all the time, and somebody asked me if they started giving me their order and asked if I would close the door, which I did, because poor her, really? That's probably the highlight of her fucking day. It makes a great story for me to tell at union conferences. And, um, and no shame in it, I was a waitress for years. I was terrible at it, and I felt like saying, love, if, if you want professional service, I'm not the waitress for you. But we are where we are. Um, but that experience of being in a different class environment meant that I lost my fear, and it meant that I lost the feeling that a lot of people from unrepresented communities have, that they don't know the language or the in-words or have the accent or know the, the rituals, the behaviour, or specifically the protocols of what it means to engage in a mainstream debate or participate in mainstream media. I mean, they are incredibly class-hostile spaces and culturally hostile spaces. So losing that fear and coming back and going, well, I'm just, I'm just going to give it a go, was very lucky for me because I came to Australia at a time where the media was moving online. And for the first time in his history, rather than an editor saying, we know X number of people read our newspaper because we've handed out X number of newspapers, they have the data of just how many people are reading and what the demographics of those people are. And wouldn't you know, in a country where even if 50% of the population are not union members, significantly more than 50% of the population believe that unions have a right to exist and are susceptible to pro-union messaging. So writing absolutely overt pro-union material meant, can you imagine, that I built an enormous audience, you know? And it's meant that I have been able to take the messages that I represent of my community and our political values to a community that, hang on, actually wants to hear them. But part of that reason is because I'm culturally familiar. Like, I'm unbelievably proud of where I come from. I grew up in, like, the shitty southern suburbs of Sydney. Like I said, I went to Port Hacken High. Like, I learned a lot of things at school. Some of them was, like, how many bulbs you could, you could potentially do in an hour without, you know, passing out. And, you know, <laughs> what to do in a knife fight. And, you know, and I'm actually proud of that. Like, that's interesting and that's fun. And where that, where that becomes really important in terms of media strategies and organising strategies is that politics flows downstream from culture. This is something that the American right understand really well. And that, unfortunately, a lot of us from communities who look at what mass media looks like and look at talking heads and, pol and politicians and what we're told is like serious leadership, thinks that we have to disavow our culture, our language, how we communicate to one another. And you see it when people do put members on the microphone and go, oh, here, talk to the media, and they freak out because it's like, I don't know what to do, everybody's looking at me, I don't know what the language is and the rest of it. But politics flowing downstream from culture means recognising that actually the most powerful mobilisation tool in your arsenal is having a good time and being an accessible space and creating a community where we don't have to act like them, they have the obligation to act like us. Because there are, as I said before, far more of us than there are of them and there always have been. And it's embracing those cultural spaces that actually puts mobilisation into practice. 
you do not need to sit down with a copy of the Communist Manifesto or the ACTU Constitution or the Curtin White Paper on Full Employment from 1945, all of which, can I say, are fantastic documents of you know, great importance to our cause. If you can throw a really good party, if you can identify what your members and your communities do to have a good time, you have just realised your first organising opportunity. Because I didn't learn my politics at university. I learned it from my parents. And I learned it from my grandparents and my neighbours and the guy who was best man at my parents' wedding, who was a trade union organiser for the AMWU back in the day. And that process of passive learning of values, it, it doesn't actually matter how perfect we get the message. It's the fact that we get the intention of what it means to be a community and act in collective interest. Some unions in this country do it really well. The ETU are awesome at this. One of the most powerful organising hubs in Australia is the ETU Clubhouse in Brisbane where everybody comes off shift, no they can get a drink, no one's going to police their behaviour, no one's going to tell them, you know, like how to behave. And they can have a private gathering, hang out with one another, share stories. And the organisers use it as an opportunity of listening to the members, what they're doing, where they're going, how they're doing it, what their issues are. Right, that is how you mobilise people. My advantage as an activist is that I come from a theatre background. You know, as humiliating as that must be for that journalist who didn't get the job doing the journalism <laughs> that I did. Ha, 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 Because in the theatre, right, the first 20 years of your career, you're not getting paid. Like, you are doing things at night time, painting the set, two o'clock in the morning, moving same place, learning the lines. One of the actors gets syphilis and can't turn on. <laughs> but you learn, like, there's, if, for people to put themselves through that, the poverty and the, like, you know, losing all your free time, working 26 jobs in order to put on some show that five people will come and see, is that you're having a good time. And if you can create the opportunity for people to have a good time, they will do anything. They will picket, they will supply a picket, they will strike, they will organise, they will come to the meeting because you are giving them opportunities to get outside work, which is often boring and repetitive, to get outside family, which even if it's great, is still exhausting, which provides them an experience of gathering in person, which is more exciting than watching television and just sitting there passively absorbing an adventure which is happening to someone else. And it's actually in those spaces of, of creating fun and entertainment and all those things that we have the opportunity of a passive politics which is also accessible. You know, one of the best dance parties I've ever been to was at some festival I went to in Barcelona. I can't speak a fucking word of Catalan. I have no idea what the festival was about. But I took my clothes off at 2 o'clock in the morning with everybody else because I was having a great time. And that's the thing. Fun does not have language or behaviour barriers. You know, it creates an automatic community that acts in its own solidarity. It has dynamics of its own self-perpetuation. So let's not get hung up on how the ruling class behave or their middle class minions with their manners and their you know, news organisations and the rest of it. Let's not look at Twitter as a place where we all have to out-perfect one another. Let's look at conversations as an opportunity for being entertaining, 
relevant and connected who the fuck we are, because we have every right to be proud of that. Thank you. The incomparable Van Bedham. That was at the Raw uh, conference yesterday, uh, Women's Rights at Work, and uh, it's actually a very compelling argument that she places uh, for as a, a core of organising skill. Uh, she's great to listen to. Uh, she's a great little performer. Um, and that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, we uh, heard from uh, fantastic recordings from uh, Homes Not Prisons, the uh, event that was on Parliament Steps yesterday. Thank you very much, Karina and Gab. Uh, we heard from Christy Kane, who's alerting us to uh, Australia's su- Australian super's role in the oppression of workers on the Liverpool wharves, and uh, that's uh, watch the, this space because something's going to happen there. Uh, uh, workers super shouldn't be used to oppress workers on the other side of the world. Uh, this is the week that was. Oh, no, we spoke to Jason Smith about uh, Mandy Martin's exhibition at the uh, Geelong Gallery. Uh, then we had This is the Week That Was, and we heard from Carolyn Dunbar from the uh, Women's Centre at Vic Trades Hall, who is the lead organiser at the Women's uh, uh, Women's Centre, as I said, but has uh, been organising RAW. And we just heard Van Benham. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with Life Goes On by King Stingray. Son, to the future of another day. Hey, all my boy, don't wait for someone else to say. Stay the same and remember the aim. What you going for? Stop in your mind and live your dream. This is your destiny. Cause the sun will rise. To bring another day What you're waiting for You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.